0: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. A recent report found that cervical cancer is much more prevalent than previously thought, even though it is preventable. A lack of proper screening means that too often cancer isn't detected until it is in an advanced stage. The research also found that there is a significant disparity in the rates of death between white women and African-American women with cervical cancer. Joining us today to talk about cervical cancer and maybe some uh, other types of cancer as well is Dr. Rebecca Fiaton, a gynecologic oncologist at Penn State Cancer Institute, and she joins us uh, this afternoon, or excuse me, this morning on Smart Talk. And, uh, you know, I knew I was going to mess up your first, your your name, uh, Dr. Fiaton, right?
1: For the record, is Fayeton.
0: Fayeton. Okay, (laughs) Fayeton. I I was trying to remember when we met ahead of time that that, that there is that French tone at the end. Fayeton. Is that kind okay? of rolls off your tongue,
1: uh, There we go.
0: Okay. If you have a question or a comment about cervical cancer, maybe some other cancers that uh, primarily affect women, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, let's talk a little bit about this report. As I mentioned in the introduction, uh, the, the report said that it is much more prevalent, cervical cancer is much more prevalent than we previously thought. You know, as I'm doing research for this program uh, you know one of the, the websites that i found and this was a reputable website was saying that uh, we have many how do I put how do they put it there are much fewer many fewer uh, cervical cancers today than we used to have but then you hear this report and it says it's much more prevalent what what did you think when you heard that report
1: So the rate of cervical cancer is true. It's significantly less than what we used to have in this country prior to pap smear screening. Cytology screening set the standard for detecting cervical cancer early because that's when we began to understand the precancerous changes and had interventions such as surgery, removal of the abnormal area to remove the cancerous cells and prevent cervical cancer. However, in reading the report, I think it Accentuated what we did know. We did know that there was a disparity in who has cervical cancer. We knew that African American women and women who had lower socioeconomic status, lack of access to care, smokers, were those who had increased rates of cervical cancer. What this report highlights is that those rates are even more disparate than what we believed. The overall number of cervical cancer cases is not higher, but what we thought we had impacted, though I guess I could say is our impact is less than what we had previously thought by pap smears screening alone, and then looking at, of the women who were able to be defined as having cervical cancer, it's actually higher. What does that mean? This study looked at women who actually had a hysterectomy. If you have no cervix, you cannot be counted as someone who could potentially have cervical cancer. So looking at the rates of cervical cancer that were defined before... Taking out those women who had hysterectomy really gives you the true incidence or the true um, number of patients who have cancer. And that was found to be similar, but what was different and striking was that the impact or the disparity between white and African-American women was much greater than what we had previously imagined, showing us that we've actually done less than what we've originally intended with our screening measures,
0: see, I'm always curious when you get a chance to talk with a medical profession, your professional, your observations. now, you're at Penn State, a Hershey Medical Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you have you noticed any difference, or was this a report was this report a total surprise to you?
1: This report was not a total surprise for me for two reasons. I have been at Penn State Hershey Medical Center for two and a half years, and prior to that I trained um, and was a G1 oncologist in the Bronx. So there you see a high incidence of cervical cancer because of the population of African American, Latino population, and uh, prior to that trained in Philadelphia. So I have had a regional, geographic, and ethnic difference in training. The thing about Penn State Hershey that a lot of women in this area need to know is that the incidence of cervical cancer in the Appalachian population is as high, not as high as African-American patients, but higher than Caucasians in other areas of the country. So we do see a lot of cervical cancer still at Hershey, even though it's not the classic population where we expect the incidence to be increased. So Mm -hmm. this report underscored what I did already know about African American patients, but being in Hershey has been the surprise that there still is a lot of uh, cervical cancer in this population. Why is that? Is because we serve the catchment area of the Appalachian patients, and there's still a lot of work to be done to decrease risk factors such as smoking, increase screening, continue screening beyond childbearing, because a lot of women stop going to their doctors after they had their children, and then neglect getting their pap smears and things that we can detect, you know, studies that we can use to detect early disease.
0: Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about uh, some of the basics, symptoms, mm-hmm. uh, incidents, th- that kind of thing. But uh, when there are women, um, African-Americans or in Appalachia, as, as you just described, who are not getting screened, why is that?
1: It's, a, you know, there are a multitude of reasons. If you think about women in general, they are the ones who oftentimes are taking care of children, families, others, and they're the caregivers and nurturers. And it's very hard to concentrate that care for yourself. For women to come and take time out of their schedules and they'll take care of their children and their work and other versus coming to their own doctor unless there's a bigger problem. So sometimes I think it's a, a, a issue of not only just access to care. Sometimes the care is there, but just making the effort and understanding that there is a health related significance to prevention. We know that smoking has been well advertised as being linked to so Almost many diseases. Any disease, type of cancer. Any type of cancer. Yeah. But the importance in the screening for women's cancers needs to be elevated so we can understand it's a public health concern that we're not just saying go to the GYN so we can check a box off. There is reason, There are reasons that we go to the GYN to prevent very real diseases and that these are preventable and this is active engagement in your care. And I think that education real for women and uh, realizing that prevention is the key for a, a lot of GYN malignancies, catching it early gives you a whole different spectrum of care that you can be cured versus just treated or palliated is also important. I've uh,
0: seen uh, cervical cancer described as the most preventable cancer. Would you agree with that? I will.
1: Why? Because cervical cancer is the only GYN disease where we know 99.9% what is the cause of it. We know human papillomavirus HPV infection causes it. We have a defined screening pap smears with now HPV co-testing where they actually assess in the pap smear, do you have HPV virus present? And you have a defined surgical intervention that can remove the abnormal area and then excellent treatment if it's found in locally advanced. So there's not any other GY malignancy that follows a progression with a virus. It has a specific etiologic agent or a specific disease-causing agent that you can follow over time and help the body get rid of it.
0: But at the same time, very early on, cervical cancer does not present with symptoms, correct?
1: True. Uh, very, let me back that up. And also just to go, we also have a vaccination against it. Right, and this, we're going to talk about okay, that too, so, which just, is
0: controversial in itself for younger women.
1: OK. Well, we'll talk about that. We'll it. talk about that. <laughs> yeah. But just to say that this is the disease why I think it's right. completely preventable. Mm-hmm. And so getting back to your question, cervical cancer, it the most common symptoms are post bleeding, bleeding after intercourse, or bleeding outside of menses. However, that is usually when there is a lesion or some abnormality on the cervix itself. So while it is an early sign, it may be a late finding as well. So we don't want patients to wait until they have symptoms or pain because that, you know, heralds that the cancer has spread, it's starting to enter the nerve roots, and patients are experiencing significant discomfort. So detection is really the only way, looking there, looking at under microscope at the cytologic changes, looking at the cells, taking an assessment of the virus, because not every woman who gets HPV gets cervical cancer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we need to use our testing and our screening to identify those women who don't clear the human papillomavirus infection. Who have persistence of that infection over time and over screening, who then need an intervention such as surgical removal of that portion of the cervix.
0: All right. So ages. Let's talk about uh, when uh, a, a young woman—and I say young woman—should mm-hmm. uh, be should be screened.
1: This is always a moving target. Currently, after the age of thirty, we recommend screening and Pap smears every three years, because like I said, human papillomavirus causes all cervical cancer. However, most people who are infected, it's the most common infection that's transmitted sexually. Most women have no sequelae. But in younger ages, patients have a robust immune system, their body's healthy enough to clear the effects of the virus, and they don't have any changes. We found that screening patients in their 20s means that you just do more interventions for someone who would have already gotten rid of their infection. You do more biopsies, colposcopies, and surgeries. So screening is recommended until the age of 65 or 70, but this depends on any abnormalities in that 30, 35-year range. If someone had abnormal cells on their pap smear, their screening may need to extend longer, or if they had a colposcopy, biopsies, they may need to extend past that age of 65, just depending on their um, results. But if A woman's had normal pap smears throughout that time. There are current recommendations that suggest that screening is safe to stop.
0: All right. Now, you mentioned the age of 30 and then being screened or having a pap smear every uh, three years. Tell me, you just also mentioned that uh, if you're sexually active, shouldn't younger women be screened if they are sexually active?
1: No, because sexual activity in and of itself does not mean that HPV will become persistent. Right, right. I try to describe it to my patients such as, like, there's a cold going around the, you know, community.
0: As well I know.
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I might hear that tickle in my throat. (laughs) You may have, you may feel it coming on. You have the symptoms this year. And then five months from now, I may take your blood and be able to say that, you know what, you have that particular type of cold virus but you're not actively affected by it. Your body has suppressed the expression of that cold. You're not sneezing, you're not coughing, you're unaffected. But if I look at the level of your blood or serum, I will be able to tell that that virus is still present. So what does that mean for screening young women? We can go do a pap smear and that HPV co-testing and say, oh, okay, you have HPV, but that does not mean that their body is gonna have a clinical significance or clinical sequelae that those cells are going to look abnormal. Most often than not, the um, body heals, per se, the virus or suppresses the virus virus in such a way that there are no pap smear abnormalities, patients do not need colposcopy, and there is no need for further invention. This is not to say that I have not seen young patients with cervical cancer, but those, again, are the rare of the rare cases.
0: I'm a little bit confused because, um, again, as I'm researching this, one of the the things I I saw as ways to prevent cervical cancer Mm -hmm. is for the male to wear a condom. Explain that.
1: Males are the most, I'm not going to say perpetrators, but they are the spreaders of cervical cancer. Because the virus um, HPV wants to affect what we call mucosal surfaces, like in the lining of your mouth, that soft mucosal tissue is what the that vagina is lined with, and if the virus cannot come in contact with that mucosal surface, you can decrease the rate of transmission. It is unclear. There's not a symptom when someone has an uh, another infection. You know, they may have burning pain, or you know, or other symptomatology with human papillomavirus, you can't see it, men don't know that they're affected and that it can spread it, but definitely by creating a barrier or a, a process by which um, bodily fluids cannot come in contact with a reservoir or the mucosal surfaces of the female genital tract, then it will decrease it. That's not a primary prevention, but when patients ask, what can it's I one. do? It's Yeah, one. absolutely.
0: Yeah. So men would show no effect of the HPV virus?
1: Not really, because, again, those mucosal surfaces, Mm -hmm. the amount of that is so much smaller at the tip of the male genitalia versus the women's um, natural anatomy. There are cases where human papillomavirus does also cause genital warts, and men can have those, and or there are penile cancers that are still HPV-related, which are the counterpart to cervical cancer, and men do have that. Those are very extremely rare, but they do exist. As far as transmission or infection, I know that I have a cold and I have to wash my hands and do certain measures. There's no signs for men or women that you have that HPV infection. When it established, cancer is established, then we talk about that post bleeding or bleeding after intercourse, spotting at abnormal times during the menstrual cycle.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. By the way, tomorrow is World Cancer Day, and uh, today on Smart Talk, on this portion of the program, we're focusing on one cancer in particular. may talk about a few others as, as well. A recent report found that uh, the instances of uh, cervical cancer much more prevalent than previously thought, even though it is preventable. Our guest during this portion of the program is Dr. Rebecca Fayeton, who is a gynecologic oncologist at Penn State Cancer Institute, and uh, Uh, She's here to answer your questions. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Also, on Twitter, we are on Twitter, at smarttalk, WITF. Again, that is 1-800-729-7532. All right, I want to ask some of the basic questions. This probably is the most basic of all. What is cervical cancer?
1: Cervical cancer is a disease that starts with human papillomavirus and occurs when the human papillomavirus is able to establish a significant infection through all the layers of the cervix and begins to become invasive, meaning that there's a protective layer in the cervix and all body tissues called the basement membrane. And when that human papillomavirus infects enough cells and those cells begin to push through that barrier, it's invasive, and that is cervical cancer.
0: How does it present?
1: Most commonly, it presents with a lesion on the cervix. You can see an abnormality um, that's either found during routine screening or when a patient presents with pain or post bleeding, bleeding after intercourse or s- abnormal spotting. The patient comes with symptomatology.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you talked about uh, who should be screened and the, the ages of which they should be screened. Uh, I'm assuming that any woman can get cervical cancer, but uh, are are we talking certain age groups that are more susceptible?
1: The natural history of cervical cancer is that women can get infected with HPV and have human (laughs) papillomavirus. However, the virus takes years to establish that um, depth of infection that I was talking about, like through the layers and pushing through. So the natural history is generally the infection was 10 to 14 years before the the presentation of cancer we know that cervical cancer is usually found in older age groups postmenopausal women and in this most recent study we see that elderly black women are the ones who are more affected later than the ages where we thought in the 60s to 70s age range
0: mm. okay so we've talked a lot of, a lot about screening what about treatment how is cervical cancer treated
1: when cervical cancer is found in early stages meaning stage 1 stage Well, up to stage 2a sometimes, but stage one, let's just say stage one is the size of the lesion or the size of the cancer tumor is less than four centimeters. We can do what we call a radical hysterectomy. The uterus, cervix, tubes, ovaries, and the tissues outside of the cervix are removed through surgery. And generally in early stages, that is a treatment and patients do not need any further treatment such as chemotherapy and radiation. If somebody comes with locally advanced or cancer that spread outside of that cervix in l- regional lymph nodes or further, they're treated with chemotherapy and radiation. The mainstay of treatment is radiation daily for five weeks with chemotherapy to help that radiation work better. Mm-hmm.
0: As we said earlier, this is one of the most preventable types of cancer, if not mm-hmm. the most uh, preventable type of cancer. Uh, but when does it reach a point where it can be fatal?
1: Absolutely. Dis- disease that is metastatic, where it's um, cervical cancer can spread to the lymph nodes or the lymph nodes right above the col- collarbone. And in those cases, when so- a patient presents with metastatic cervical cancer, it is extremely difficult to treat. At that stage, we can only offer chemotherapy and generally just to slow the progression of disease. Or if the cervical cancer that was originally treated with chemotherapy and radiation, it was locally advanced recurs, it's extremely difficult to treat. And all we can offer patients, if it's only in that local area, is an exoneration. And that is a highly morbid procedure. And what that means in English is that we have to remove the bladder, the rectum, the rest of that cervix, uterus, and patients have two ostomies from their bowel and their urine on the outside of their body because you have to essentially remove the whole uh, organ structures of the pelvis. So it's highly morbid, and that is a treatment option, but it's not something we want to engage in for a preventable disease. We want to focus on the prevention portion, the early treatment, early recognition portion, because in late stages, advanced stages, our survival rates for that we have currently are very poor, and there are limited treatment options in the recurrent. I, I imagine
0: that everyone is different, but generally... How long must a, a woman have had cervical cancer if it advances to that stage where you're talking about, uh, you know, th- th- what is radical, really?
1: Right. It is difficult to say. Like I said, when from the time of HPV infection to the presentation of cervical cancer, we know it's like about 10 to 15 years. When that cancer becomes invasive, it's an aggressive, uncontrollable condition. Cancer are cells that divide without any checkpoints. Nothing stops it. It goes where it wants so if you're asking what is the rate of progression from stage 1 to stage 2 to stage 3 nobody can answer that because we just find patients in those stages and we don't really know it's we're not going to observe somebody with stage 1 and say okay let's see how it goes. But at that point, we just make the assumption that cancer is uncontrollable. It's going to spread without, contro- without any checkpoints. We have to treat it with surgery, chemotherapy, or radiation.
0: Do you tell a patient at that point that uh, they only have a certain amount of time? No. No.
1: No. Can I- people survive that? People can survive all stages of cervical cancer. What your quality of life and what your survival will look like are very different, meaning that in stage one, you can do a surgery and that radical uh, hysterectomy, sometimes it's a complicated procedure and people do live with um, outcomes of that. We follow them for five years afterwards to make sure that the cancer does not recur. The longer they have a recurrence free interval, the longer they don't have the cancer come back, the better off their survival is gonna be. But there's no one who could really look and say, stage one, you're gonna live this long. Stage four, you're gonna live this long. We can estimate based on how the progression of that person's disease is going or how their treatment course or how well they respond to treatment is, but I feel that it's unfair and I you know, I think it takes a bigger role in medicine than I'm willing to put to tell someone they have a certain time.
0: We have a question from a listener who asks, Why does testing stop at seventy uh, especially nowadays, when there are many women who will live another twenty to thirty years,
1: so when we ask for testing, the current recommendations look at how often is cancer prevented in this age group, and how many how many tests do you have to do to find one case of cancer. So in age after age seventy, maybe you have to do a million pap smears, a million women have to be tested to find two cases of cervical cancer because in this age group is rare. I will say that with this study that just came out that we're discussing this morning, it makes me as a clinical provider question those recommendations because the disparity in certain groups of African-American women is such that at later ages they will be more likely to have cancer. So perhaps there needs to be a differential recommendation based on ethnicity to say this patient has a higher risk later than a Caucasian population. But to answer the listener's question directly is that the reason why we stop it at 70 currently is because the number of tests required to find one case makes it less effective. This doesn't mean it it makes it negligible, really. You spend so much screening for hundreds of women to find something that's a rare event.
0: Let's take a phone call from Joe in Camp Hill. Joe, you're on the air. Oh, hi.
1: Hi. Hi, Scott. Good morning. Hi. Um, I was
2: listening to this program with a great deal of interest because I have wondered, uh, as I learn more about HPV, is there uh, an an interrelationship between throat cancer and oral sex?
1: It is Thank you for that question. That's a great question. It can be related, definitely, because HPV virus spreads to mucous membranes. And you might have heard earlier where I described the mouth and the throat have so much of that mucous lining. Yeah. A lot of oral, not all, but a lot of oral cancers can be HPV related, same as head and neck cancers and esophageal cancers. Some of them are adenocarcinoma, which are a cancer of the glands, but definitely your question is relevant. We can't say it is the cause, but if it's HPV identified where they like look at the tissues and say this came from HPV, it is very well uh, possible that it is related to oral sex and the transmission of the fluid to the throat.
0: Thank you very much for your call. Uh, all right. Earlier, you mentioned uh, the, the virus, and I said at the time about it being controversial. One of the reasons the virus, excuse me, the, the vaccination, uh, the vaccine itself is not controversial. What was controversial was some recommendations for teenage girls to uh, you know, mm-hmm. b- become uh, vaccinated. So first of all, talk about the vaccination, how it works if it is 100% uh, uh, you know prevent preventative and then we will talk about younger women
1: okay so the vaccination is based on the knowledge that all cervical cancer cases are caused by human papilloma virus the vaccination is not 100% the reason why i say this is because we know that there are 14 types of um, hpv which are the high risk strains of human papillomavirus that are found in cervical cancer. These are the ones when patients have cancer, if they do the genotyping or looking at the exact type of human papillomavirus, you'll see it's most commonly type 16, 18, 31, and then there's a bunch of numbers afterwards, 33, 35. Currently, the vaccination, the most popular, is a quadrivalent vaccine. So it gets vaccination against HPV type 16, 18, and the two types of HPV that cause genital warts, which are 6 and 11. So because I just mentioned that there are 14 types of human papillomavirus that cause cervical cancer, unless you protect against all those, then it would only be 100%. -hmm. But the most common at over 70 to 80% of cervical cancers caused by HPV 16 or 18, so vaccinating against those two primary types will, in effect, decrease the rate of cervical cancer substantially, the reason why we want younger women to get it is prior to exposure to HPV where it's unknown if you're exposed or not your body can build a, an immunity and have the vaccination against prior against HPV prior to sexual intercourse.
0: Mm-hmm. So I mean the age group when you say younger women we're talking 13 14
1: It's 9 to 26 years okay. of age. So it's not it's recommended you can have it up until age 26. So I know in this country we've had low attrition rates to vaccination for the reason that people feel uncomfortable for different reasons for saying I'm protecting my child against a sexually transmitted infection. My child is not gonna have that. The truth is, is that human papillomavirus is almost ubiquitous. People can acquire it through the birth canal. I mean, it's not that it's only acquired through sexual intercourse. It's not like the sexually transmitted infections that you see of like syphilis or trichomonas or gonorrhea, chlamydia, human papillomavirus is everywhere. Gen- hand, uh, genital warts, um, patients have warts on their fingers. That's human papillomavirus driven. So to protect against cancer is really the emphasis and that these two strains are the most common. And that's why we offer it from ages 9 through 26 for women, for girls, and now young boys.
0: You know, I know I'm I'm jumping around Mm -hmm, on you with a lot of questions, but uh, um, a lot of times I get my questions from what you're saying, so it pops into my mind. Um, Some of the things that you're describing could be confused or also present with other types of uh, sexually transmitted diseases. That's one thing. Um, But there are many women who may have vaginal discharges, may spot, may Mm -hmm. have heavy periods, those kind of things. Um, I I don't know. I guess the question, how do they know other than getting screened?
1: I think it's so important that, you know, with the information overload that we have available on the Internet, I mean, you can Google symptoms and come up with these diagnoses, but there is a medical provider out there who has trained for a long time to be able to put these into a story, establish a clinical diagnosis, and have a patient undergo certain testing. You know, some of it doesn't always have to be HPV. It could be a urinary tract infection. It could be a sexually transmitted infection. It's not just the pap smear screening, it's the clinical exam, it's the symptom history, it's the timing, the onset, all other questions you gather from a medical history. So, my recommendation is yes, there's a bevy of sy- symptoms a woman can have. Presenting that to your care provider, nurse practitioner, MD, your doctor, or whomever needs to be within the context of what's been happening, how long is this going on? Any new finding symptoms? Sometimes women could change their soap or laundry and be affected, you know, laundry detergent and be affected. So there's not really one thing we could point out, but Mm. definitely when we find HPV, we know where, where it's leading or how to follow it. But Mm. there's not any, I can't counsel a, a person to say, when you see this exact thing happening, you know, it's, this this not that kind of cancer.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Fayeton, and I'm hoping I I know I'm butchering your name. But
1: I, I love that you're trying it's great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm trying to roll that ton of, uh, you know that off, off the yeah, end you're of it. You <laughs> getting getting better every time. Uh, if you had some advice to leave with our audience today, what would it be?
1: My advice is your health is the most valuable commodity you have. We live in an area where there are providers on every level. You're not responsible to know everything, but presenting to a care provider can help you protect that commodity and be the healthiest version of yourself you can be. Yes, there are definitive things you can do, like quit smoking, eat healthy, live a healthy, active lifestyle. But... In the case of a lot of GYN-related issues, you need to come to your care provider to take a closer look and let them apply their expertise to your health to then continue on the course of health health and safety and ask your questions. Come with questions prepared of your provider based on what you want to know.
0: You know, I really don't want to get into, you know, the future of the Affordable Care Act and that kind of thing, but... Are pap smears, uh, are they covered, or is that part of what's covered under Obamacare?
1: Pap smears in general are preventative medicine, and it's covered by all health care providers because we know that we are able to prevent with screening. It is much more effective to screen and treat early than to have the end result of cancer and pay for that. So most insurance providers, and yes, Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, will um, invest in screening to protect okay. that.
0: I said that we were going to let you go, but uh, we got a phone call here. And just because it is such an important topic, I want to make sure that we touch on okay. everything. Jessica is in Lancaster. Jessica, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Go ahead. What's your question?
2: No, I was just calling in to say that I did have a radical hysterectomy. Uh, When I was pregnant with my last daughter, they actually found that I had cervical cancer, Mm -hmm. and um, we weren't really planning on having a baby, so it was really a blessing. But I was a general manager of a restaurant, super busy, working 80 hours a week, missed my PAP appointment, fell off the books, didn't reschedule, and so I was just calling to remind people that it's so, so important. You know, you kind of think, oh, you know, I'll... I'll get it the next time around and if I hadn't become pregnant who knows when I would have remembered to get my pap mm-hmm. and it could have been you know in my lymph nodes by then Right.
0: so how are you doing now
2: I'm doing good I'm five years out cancer-free yeah, yeah. doing really great That's
1: awesome.
0: uh, Jessica I'm glad you called thank you very much for for your call but you know hearing testimonials like that uh, it just goes to prove what you you've been talking about. How important it is yes. to to get screened and think about it. I mean, right. she was very fortunate that that pregnancy uh, was what uh, what brought it out.
1: Yes, and women will take care of their babies and go to their prenatal appointments and once I can't tell you how many women I've seen that their last pap smear was at their prenatal care their daughter is 14, 15 years old I haven't had any care since then because like she mentioned she's busy, she's working she's taking care of her family and thank God for that blessing she had to bring her back into screening so that's what I would say to Every woman out there, and even myself and any other woman, don't forget about yourself. You are the most important commodity, and taking care of yourself means you take care of others even better.
0: We have a fan of yours here, uh, Dr. Feiton. Uh, Vince in Lebanon said that you work with his wife, and it's great to hear you on Smart Talk. So. Oh, thank you. I know you,
1: Vince. I'm so glad you're a listener.
0: <laughs> thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Okay. Thank you for having me.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamont. Scott Hoke had, uh, Susan Hoke, I should say, had sought a protection from abuse order from a York County judge. And her husband, Scott, was arrested for violating that uh, that PFA. Despite a state law that dictates guns are to be seized from the arrestee in such a case, Scott Hoke was allowed to keep his guns. He had more than a dozen. In September of last year, Scott Hoke arrived at the home of his estranged wife, Susan, shot her to death, and then turned the gun on himself. York Daily Record reporter Ed Mann has written extensively about this case and the discrepancies in protective law that allow abusers to retain possession of their firearms. Ed Mann is with us right now. Ed, how are you? good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, I always like to present uh, the personal side of our guest. Uh, uh, You are uh, talking to us by a phone because uh, you have a wife that is very close (laughs) to delivering a baby, correct?
3: That's true. That's true. It's uh, any any day now. Any day uh, now.
0: Yeah. So I appreciate uh, you taking time out from what will be even your busier schedule (laughs) here in the next few days to be with us today. But, Ed... uh, Something not so pleasant to talk about. Uh, tell me the story. Uh, you, you know the story that uh, you, that ran in the York Daily Record earlier this week. Uh, you, it's not just about Susan Hoke or, or Scott Hoke, uh, but it's about a big issue. But let's talk about Susan's story in particular. What happened in September last year?
3: So in uh, September 12th last year, uh, Scott Hoke showed up at the home of, of Susan. Uh, He came in late at night. It was uh, a little before 11 Um, o'clock. The only people there were Susan and Susan's 17-year-old daughter, Tiffany. Uh, Police say Scott shot Susan and then shot himself. Tiffany was upstairs at the time. We talked to her. She talked about how um, basically he also threatened to to kill her at certain points. um, And she described a very heroin ordeal where she – Eventually, you know, it escaped, but uh, it was a very frightening experience um, and traumatic experience.
0: But Susan had gotten a protection from abuse order, actually a few, Mm -hmm. but did she have a final PFA against Scott?
3: She did, and so she had a final PFA against Scott. That was approved in August, and under federal law, um, if you have a final PFA against you, generally you're banned from possessing guns and we talked to different law enforcement, uh, different attorneys, and they said Scott Hogue, under federal law, was banned from possessing guns. He met the criteria for the federal ban. But in Pennsylvania, judges aren't required to order you to give up your guns. So basically, if you if someone gets a PFA against you um, and it gets approved, a final PFA, you're pretty much banned from buying a new gun, but there's, it's not automatic that you're going to have to give up your guns you already own.
0: You know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to a lot of people, I'm sure. I mean, the idea it's a protection from abuse, protection. You would think that would be one of the first things, one of the first questions they ask, especially with a final, especially with a final PFA of whether there are firearms in the house, whether the the person that has the PFA against him or her um, you know, has access to firearms.
3: Yeah, and in Pennsylvania too, it's the it, when you when you file if you're filing a protection from abuse order, you actually indicate whether the person owns guns, uh, has access to guns, uh, so that information is part of the um, part of the petition. You know, when you originally ask for a PFA, um, but it's just it's it's up to the judge to determine whether to order the guns relinquished, and and part of it too. I mean, there's you know, in Pennsylvania law, it's not automatic, and I think that Coalition Against Domestic Violence has done some analysis of of state figures and saw that it was relatively rare that the firearms are ordered to be given up and on the you know on the i've talked to some you know some attorneys who handle pfa cases and one of the things they say is you know guns made you know for for some people for a lot of people the guns you know the cases aren't going to end up with a murder or suicide murder suicide um and so there's all you know comes down to a balancing of of rights. I mean there are there are clearly people who think all people with a final PA against them should be forced to give up their weapons and there's some legisl- you know, there's plans for some legislation along those lines. So.
0: Yeah, and again, you would think that that would be the case, since uh, one of the reasons that there's a PFA sworn out in the first place is that there most often is is violence. Okay, uh, I want to uh, define a couple terms here and sure. then talk a little bit more about uh, Scott Hoax' background. Uh, final P- uh, pr- protection from abuse order. How is that different than other PFAs?
3: So, it's, so yeah, there's the in Pennsylvania, there's the. Um, there's, there's the emergency uh, PFA, which is basically approved by a magisterial district judge. So that's like basically on, on nights and weekends. Um, then there's the temporary PFA, and uh, temporary PFA is approved by a commonplace judge. It's um, approved you know, during the, the work week. Um, it's pretty much the first step in, in the PFA process. Um, you know the, the application you submit for a temporary PFA is the same one for the final PFA. Essentially, a temporary PFA. Uh, if you're asking for one, it's got to be against um, someone who meets the criteria. You know, an intimate partner, uh, family member, and uh, the judge decides pretty much that day whether you meet the criteria for having the protection order. And if the judge gives you the protective order, then the judge can order a number of things. Um, they can order guns to be taken away. They can order the person evicted from the home um, and other penalties along those lines. And the temporary PFAs are approved with only one side. They're, because it's there's not a time for everybody to get to a hearing in one day, it's based on the plaintiff, the alleged victim. Mm-hmm. And then...
0: Sorry. Go ahead. No. Go OK, so let's talk about Scott Hoke's background, because yeah. I think that you, you, you have to provide a little bit of history, which your your story does, mm-hmm. provide a little bit of history about this couple's relationship and how violent it was and how volatile it, it was leading up to, uh, you know, Susan Hoke being murdered.
3: Yeah. And so when we talk and you know, we've talked on the air today about the, the final PFA and how under federal law he shouldn't have had weapons. There are also a number of other reasons, you know, existing law that says Scott Hoke shouldn't have had weapons. Um, but he, so in, in, everything sort of came to a head in their marriage. They've been married for, for, you know, years. Um, but things came to a head in July during a trip to a Northumberland County campground. Uh, Susan told police that Scott Hoke pulled her by the hair, left a scratch mark on her back, uh, tried to slam her head into a picnic table. Um, Scott was arrested for that. Uh, He was charged with um, simple assault uh, that was eventually reduced to a a lower charge. But um, so that sort of that incident in Northumberland County led to criminal charges in Northumberland County, and it led to Susan um, filing for a PFA in York County.
0: And from what I understand in your story, that that was one of the issues that where something fell through the cracks is communication between Northumberland County and York County, right?
3: Uh, So the issue is, um, and so Scott Hoke ended up pleading guilty to a misdemeanor uh, in the Northumberland County case. Under federal law and state law, if you have a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, you're not supposed to have weapons. Um, There are, you know, there's a similar relinquishment gap um, is is what some of the experts have called in terms of the experts pretty much say requiring people to actually give up weapons after they meet these criteria is is a big gap. But um, the big thing is, in his case, he was placed on probation, um, and it's a standard condition of probation that you're not supposed to possess weapons, both in Northumberland and York counties. Um, Northumberland County officials provided limited information, but it's you know his family members say guns were never taken from him or he was never forced to give them up. And there was the Northumberland County one official told me that there was basically a 30-day delay for a case to be transferred to York County because. He, because of the way he played it in at a lower level. So there was essentially a 30-day delay before it would have been given to the York County Probation Office to handle, So, which you know, then York County Probation Office wasn't involved in this at all, so they didn't do any home visits. Um, and Northumberland County, it's not clear based on, they're not providing much information, but it's not clear what, what they did in terms of, to ensure he didn't have guns.
0: Is it common that there's a that 30-day delay uh, if, you know, the crime was committed in one county and uh, the person who was arrested uh, it lives in another county?
3: I, I guess I'm, I can't really speak to, I guess, how co- common it is for, for all cases. I Just what I know about this, in, in this type of case, when if you plead to, like, a misdemeanor at a magisterial district judge level, which is, a, you know, a lower level, um, it's, like, not as doesn't you he played he played played guilty to, to them the magisterial district judge and then it takes pretty much 30 days for the for the case to get into the system at the county level and which then means that it's like a 30-day delay to for then that county to transfer it all
0: right so uh, i i just want to be clear here ed did anyone in northumberland county did anyone in york county did a judge ask scott hoke if he had uh access to firearms
3: um so, in, I guess there's, in Northumberland County, you know, I, I reviewed the, the dockets there. There's, no, there's never a court order to give him, for ordering him to give up weapons in Northumberland County case, and there was never uh, an order in York County ordering him to give up, give up weapons. I mean, York County, you know, he he did the the a form was filled out that indicated that he had weapons. Um, so during the transcripts in York County, nobody nobody asked about firearms. Um, But it would have been part of the uh, PFA application.
0: But it was documented on the PFA. Yeah, it
3: was documented on on the PFA application. Now,
0: also in your story, you point out that uh, Susan Hoke, the victim, uh, that I don't know, maybe you again can clarify, was she asked whether uh, he had uh, he had weapons and whether she wanted those weapons taken away?
3: So yeah, so in the when she initially filed for a PFA, um, on, that would have been in July. She she you know she submits that application for a PFA, which covers both temporary and PFA, and the final PFA. She was asked if he had weapons, a weapon or weapons. Um, she said yes. Yeah, she checked the box box yet yes, and then uh, she also did not request that they be taken away. Um, so that's is an issue that the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence and, and advocates say, is is part of a problem. It's that they think that. Victims in these cases are put in a dangerous and uncomfortable position because they have to worry about whether asking for the judge to make him him or her give up weapons is going to make the abuser angrier, get him vindictive, and, and escalate the situation. So the advocates would like to see it just be automatic. So. Person, you know, the victim isn't the one who has to have this responsibility.
2: Yeah,
0: I mean, you don't have judges aren't asked, and there's a box there that uh, is checked off, but the victim has to ask that, uh, that the weapons are taken away. Now, you know, a lot of us could question why she wouldn't have done that, but uh, yeah, I think you can understand that uh, there could be the concern. Of making the uh, person the PFA is against uh, angrier, and maybe he he uses those weapons. Um,
3: and just to, and just to kind of and and with the advocates and the lawyer with the Coalition Against Domestic Violence say is that ultimate decision in in the PFA cases is up to the judge. So the judge, if you know, if a victim asks for guns to be taken away, the judge doesn't have to do that. If a victim doesn't ask, the judge can still order guns taken away
0: in your story you quote uh the the lawyer who uh represented scott hoke and he tried to defend you know why uh, the, and you can talk about this if you would yeah. uh he tried to defend why this notch sh- should not be automatic that uh weapons would be taken away
3: yeah if so i talked to uh samuel gates one of the attorneys and i talked to some other attorneys too i didn't End up making it into the story, but the sort of the the counter argument is that it oh, covers different aspects of it. But but one is just Sam Gates's view is just that you know people um, people might be fine with agreeing to a PFA and be, might be fine with agreeing to never contact the person again, but they want guns for other reasons, whether it's hunting or their own protection. Um, and so you know his view was that you could be if you have this blanket if you make it a requirement for all cases, you could be hurting, you know, infringing on the rights of, of many people who who would never be an issue. In. And I talked to some other attorneys too, and part of the issue is, you know, some defendants, some attorneys who specialize in defending PFA cases, you know, they say that you know, the firearms issue cannot, can sometimes be used as leverage um, in cases. And, and another thing too is, you know, PFA cases, it's not the same standard as a criminal case. You know, there's a, it's a, Civil civil matter and and so it's a it's a lower standard to to prove a PFA than you would have in a criminal case.
0: I I think I, I told you this story maybe not but uh, I I knew of a woman a friend actually who uh, was in a relationship with a man who was uh, assaulting her on a regular basis. I mean he was beating her up and she got a, a pro- protection from abuse order and he had to give up his guns. Um, his parents contacted her and said won't you relent on uh, the, the gun issue because he can't go hunting now uh, he can't use his guns to go hunting and the parents got involved and wanted her to to give that up i mean i i just you know I, when i heard that story i was like that's incredible you know yeah. the your, your son beat this woman Mercis, mercifully, oh, I, I can't talk today because I'm yeah. on uh, medication. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, but unmercifully, there we yeah. go. Yeah. Uh, but uh, one of the parents, one of their main concerns was that he had his guns.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there are you know, and, and part of the issue too is there's um, you know, the, the, there was a, a legislative report back in November uh, that sort of highlighted like I think it was about a dozen different cases, and and they weren't all the same. Same, they weren't all the same failures of the system, but a dozen cases of people with protective orders against them having access to weapons, having access to guns, and you know that leading to homicides and um violence and and so and it's so that was that was one of the reasons we decided to like dive deep on on the susan Ho case to see explore all the different aspects of it um and and you know what we found was that there was a lot of different reasons why Scott Ho shouldn't have had a gun in addition to just. Just the one.
0: Mm. We only have about a minute left, uh, a minute or so left. Uh, Ed, thank you very much for being with us today. We'll put uh, a link on our website, wytf.org, uh, to to your story. But uh, so so, where did this go? I mean, obviously, this was a tragedy, but there is a bigger issue here.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so th- th- uh, there's legislation in the state was introduced in the state senate last session. And it didn't really go anywhere. Um, requiring that everybody with a final PFA against them should give up their weapons. It would also reduce the period, if if you have a conviction for a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, it would reduce the relinquishment time from 60 days to 24 hours, and it also would have tightened who who you have to give up your weapons to. Um, Didn't go anywhere last session. Uh, Senator Tom Killian from Delaware County plans on uh, introducing similar legislation this session, as well as some other things to tighten the PFA system. Uh, one of the things that the Susan Hoek's children, Kim Brown, her, one of her daughters, she would like to see GPS monitoring um, in domestic violence cases. You know, that that's something that would have to be – some law, lawmakers are talking about doing.
0: But hey, and yeah. I have to interrupt you. Ed Mann from the York Daily Record, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks a lot. Coming up on Monday, we're going to talk about Penn State's THON, its 40th anniversary.